Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Contractor Evolution. As I was prepping for this episode, I found a few catchy data points from a market research piece that I thought would make for a great setup on today's conversation. So the first is this, 90% of consumers think reviews are more important than any information provided by a salesperson. That's pretty humbling. Number two, reviews are 12 times more credible to a customer than the sales copy on your website. And number three, while 75% of customers would be willing to provide a review, only 13% of small businesses ask. So to me, this is a data-driven way of saying a very simple truth. Buyers only really care about what other customers say about you. What you have to say about yourself, that's nice and all, but it's barely considered when it comes time to buy. On a more upbeat note though, it also says to me there is a massive opportunity for small businesses like yours to capitalize on the majority of customers who'd only be too happy to sing your praises if they were asked. And that's where today's guest comes in. Lars Christensen is the founder and CEO of Nice Job, and he is my guest on Contract Revolution today. Nice Job is a reputation marketing software that turns your customers into vocal fans to grow your business. Among other things, their platform makes review writing and posting as frictionless as possible for your clients. Now, today's conversation is about reputation marketing in general, but more specifically, why a 4.8 out of 5 Google rating is actually better than a perfect 5, how many Google reviews you need to get that critical mass that customers trust. We talk about the moment of peak excitement and how to use that precious window with your customers to capture the best reviews possible. We talk about how to deal with the dreaded one-star reviews when they come in, both on-site and online. And lastly, how to multiply the ROI of your good reviews by converting them into website content, social media posts, and even paid ads. Listen, guys, social proof is everything. Let's learn from Lars how to make the most of it. You're watching Contractor Evolution where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. You're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability. You've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Lars, it's good to see you. Welcome to the show. Hey, Benji. Thanks for having us. You're another Okanagan native, so I don't know if you're a native necessarily, but you live there. You're in my neck of the woods, so it's it's good to have a, a local guest on. I want to let's start let's start with a an easy one, okay? What is reputation marketing? Well, you really started with an easy one. Um, I think probably the easiest way of uh, of saying what reputation marketing is is if if you're going to choose a restaurant to go eat in tonight, Benji, what are you going to do? How are you going to find it? I'm probably going to Google something. Yeah. yeah. You're going to Google something and then who who are you going to read? I'm going to look at my little, I go to maps, I'll type in restaurants. I might filter by cuisine type and then I'm just going to look at stars. I'm going to look at four point, I'm going to say 4.1 versus 4.7. Oh, but the 4.1 has more reviews. I might look at some pictures. Uh, that's, that's, that's basically the, the decision-making framework. 
Yeah, and and this is reputation marketing. So you've got a real a, the, the biggest difference with reputation marketing to other marketing is who's doing the talking. This is the change. Uh, all marketing is trying to communicate value. You're trying to educate somebody about the value that you're offering. And uh, for the last you know hundred years, we've seen value education done through the voice of the company. You got you know twenties to the fifties. You had radio, uh, newspapers, fifties. You got TV. You got all those those ads about companies telling everyone that they're the best. Two thousands. We get into the internet days and. Now companies still are telling everyone they're the best. 2010s, we we still see everyone telling their customers they're the best. Um, now they're doing it in a highly targeted way. Uh, but in all these cases, 100 years, we've just had companies saying, you know, hey, we're the best, choose us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how marketing has gone for a while. Uh, reputation marketing is, is one fundamental change. It's not us saying we're the best, it's our customers saying we're the best. And that that's super important. I, I think that's that change is well. It's coming whether we like it or not. It's already here, and, and it's fundamental to how we do marketing. Can you outline the differences between reputation marketing and let's say reputation management, which I think is a term our listeners might be more familiar with? Reputation management, where it's there's an app that gets installed, or there's a process that gets thought through and installed that helps you more more or less just like limit the one stars. What's what's the difference between that and, and a more uh, broadly defined reputation marketing? Uh, I think one is like damage control and risk aversion, and the other one is growing your business. Uh, so reputation management is like you know like, like you said, it, it's uh, uh, what are people saying about me? What if someone says something bad? Yeah. How do I limit dad damage control? How do I respond to this really quickly? You know, how does this not have detrimental effects? It's loss aversion. And, you know, we all like loss aversion. Humans are more prone to loss aversion than than creation of gain, unfortunately. Um, but reputation marketing is is growth. Uh, how do I grow my business? So it's, it's arguably the, the single most important role that every a business owner has to do. How do I get more customers? And reputation marketing is the answer for that. You said something a second ago that I really want to go deeper on. Uh, you you said that it's it's you know marketing is all about kind of educating the customer on what someone does. The difference is who's doing the talking. You know, in in the more traditional sense, it's the company doing the talking. In the more modern uh, sense, it's the it's the sorry to say that right. It's the company doing the talking versus the the customer doing the talking. So here's a thing I heard and read about 10 years ago, and I found it, I thought it was very sort of like revelatory at the time, and I've seen it come true more and more. And I've touched on this in other episodes, but it's this idea that the buyer in any market, and we're going to talk about contracting businesses and home service businesses today, but this, this, this is way more universal than just this niche. The buyer really doesn't put a whole bunch of weight on what you have to say for yourself. And you mentioned sort of like the 20s to 50s era where that's all that there was. But in the last 15 years, I think there's been a quickening of that change. Like it really seems to be evolving at a a dramatic pace. What's happened psychologically to society, to consumerism in general, that has made this this, uh, diminished emphasis on what the company has to say about themselves so important? 
Yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, you ever seen the Edelman Trust Survey? No. What is it? Uh, it's this this think tank, and they did the survey, and they've done it over over many years about the evolution of trust. And uh, tr- trust is arguably the the most important currency. You know, it's more important than money. Um, and how trust is earned and how trust is spent has changed over over time. Uh, if we rewind all the way back to like, let's go right back in history, we'll go back to Greeks and Romans times. Um, they had institutions that required a great deal of trust. Like, let's say you're you're you know you're sitting back there in in the height of Greek world powerdom, and and you want to start a bank. Um, and you want people to put money into that bank. This is a trust exercise. You know, how, how do we know that that bank is going to be here tomorrow? That's still going to exist. So they build trust actually through their architecture. They created gigantic structures, huge columns, mm. over-engineered buildings, uh, used materials that were really durable, marble and stone, things that wouldn't break down. And they did all of this in an effort to create trust. Because if people trusted the bank, they put their money into the bank. So when you go back, you know, take a a tour of old world cities, you'll see government and institutions with these massive monolithic structures um, building trust in people. So those those that kind of like archetypal old world structure that I'm thinking of, which is sort of like a square building with, you know, steps coming up the front and there's these these massive columns, eight of them or 10 of them on the front of the building, you're saying that those are actually overbuilt for the aesthetic versus what the building actually needed from an engineering standpoint. That was done for the for the effect it had, uh, the perception it, it, it gave to the to the public. Yeah, what, really fascinating. What? I didn't know like, that. This Why do you think it wasn't by chance? It wasn't just because it looked pretty. This was mind games um, with people so that they could own trust, the currency that was most valuable to winning the customer. Mm-hmm. So as we fast forward, so governments had trust for a lot of time. Institutions, you know, banks, etc., uh, had a great deal of trust. Uh, even the the first part of the 20th century, uh, large corporations had a ton of trust. You know, you'd buy from a corporation because you felt like a corporation could never let you down. You know, Ford Motor Company, it's it's too big. You know, it, it, it's it's trustworthy. We 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 know that it's going to be good because it's big, it's solid, it it, it can't be broken. Um, but then we saw a transition of trust over the last. Uh, several decades where trust in institutions got smaller. Uh, people started becoming disillusioned. They they heard more things. They were let down more times. There was more information flow that opened up more knowledge towards what was happening in the background. And, and trust deteriorated with a lot of these big institutions uh, and, and even corporations. And as trust deteriorated, it wasn't lost. It shifted. So the, the total quantity, we're, we're all still trusting people, but we've changed who we trust. And, and that trust has moved into the hands of peers online. So you see over the last 10 years, uh, people trusting nameless people online who, you know, for example, write a review about a restaurant around the corner and they trust them with that decision. And, and now that peer-to-peer trust has gained incredible value in the trust economy. 
There's a data point I found, and I don't have the source for it. I should, but I don't have it. It was 90% of customers think reviews are more important than what a salesperson has to say. And I come from sales. That's a pretty compelling little figure to just ponder for a second. 90% of customers think that, like you say, what some random individual on the internet said is weighted more heavily than what the polished and well-prepped and structured and professional-looking salesperson has to communicate. And even though you don't have a reference for it, I trust you, Benji. It's, um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, it, it's fascinating to me, this 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 shift in, in, in trust. So, Okay, just I want to go back to a couple a couple things. Uh, we've seen over the last decade, and I'm not gonna like this isn't sort of like a, a modern history podcast, but maybe there's a couple things we can talk about. You can see 08 financial meltdown and the bailout that ensued. You can see um, you can see the you could take COVID, and no, it doesn't really matter what side you come down on that on that debate. I think a lot of people are left feeling a little bit I don't know less trusting. Um, you can look at where inflation is at right now and some mismanagement of, uh, of our money on the macro scale. Like there are large things that have eroded sort of the buy-in level of large, big Goliath things that we used to have. Like I think of my dad, who's, uh, you know, the quintessential baby boomer who, when he, you know, like he's like a perfect, he grew up in a time when you could trust Ford and you could trust Colgate and you could trust CNN, or if you chose to watch Fox, you could trust them. Like that is just no longer the case. You know, I'd say with the economy writ large, but, but certainly with younger generations as well, that, that level of, of sort of, uh, maybe not blind faith, but, but buy into the machine is, is gone. And that has had knock on effects to how we do business with each other is kind of what you're saying to summarize. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you think about that typical purchasing activity. If, if we want to make a decision, uh, the, the, the act of uh, reasoning through a decision to a conclusion, it, it requires a lot of mental horsepower. Um, and we're, we're usually not willing to invest that into day-to-day -day decisions like purchases. So we validate our decisions. Mm. We, we love that because it's a shortcut to making a decision that we feel really good about. Uh, so we're great at validating decisions and you know back to the trust economy we used to validate it based on what was told to us through advertisements by the corporations through ma mass media but now that validation process has moved to to things we read online uh, mm. things we communicate on social media networks with with other peers mm. things we hear on a podcast like this one like there, there's a reason why people tune into podcasts like this one because they're able to validate uh, thinking that they they might have already had but now they they hear it from people you know and and they trust it um, so we're talking about a, a mechanism that helps us validate and make decisions in our lives and, and purchase decisions, obviously, you know, for, for uh, any contractor, being able to help the audience validate the decision to choose you, uh, that's essential. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to get the next customer. So that's where the trust currency comes in. So we, if if uh, if the Greeks built massively oversized columns on the front of their buildings to install trust, the modern contractor needs to build 
a, a large volume and, and, and breadth of reviews from customers. That is like to click this down to the practical level. That's what we're talking about creating for your business today. It's this, it's this, not just a perception of trust, but an, an expression or communication of the, the reality of the deserved trust because you have all of these uh, happy customers singing your praises online. Now, a lot of this, just to really drill down to the practical level, what we're talking about today and what I think Nice Job does an amazing job uh, facilitating is 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 capturing, incentivizing and capturing reviews specifically on Google. Can you, can you, like, is Google where all of this lives? Is that where kind of 90 plus percent of our effort should be going? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question. So you think about, once again, back to the building blocks of trust. We've got two things. We've got one, um, let's call it like transparency of the source. Like, you know, can I trust the source where this information is coming from? Uh, and, and the second is reach. You know, how many people uh, can actually see this information? So when we're evaluating where we want the voice of our customer to be as a small as a business, that's what we're thinking about. Where can I put my customer's voice where other people will trust that voice? And where can I put my customer's voice where the most people will see that will hear that voice? And that's the two levers that we're looking to pull. And and at present, uh, arguably, Google has those levers. So we started off, like, you know, where are we going to find uh, a restaurant for tonight? We still Google it. Yeah. And and the top results that come up there is that local three-pack. And the local three-pack, the, the only item that's headlined in a bright color is rating. And, and rating is what people are looking at as they're going through that pack. Uh, so you've got immense reach. And you've also got an element of, of transparency because you've got some you know, behind the scenes, you know, that they're working to try to eliminate fake reviews and tie reviews to an identity that's verified to some degree, uh, not perfect mechanisms by any means, but you've got enough of a degree of, of security in, in Google as an entity that people are trusting those reviews. So yeah, today, I think you're getting the most bang for your buck on, on Google reviews as a currency. Versus say, hey, can you write us a written testimonial that I'm going to copy paste onto my website? Can you fill out this like form at the end of a job so that we can capture? I mean, though you're still so that that's good in the sense that you're getting actual feedback from the client, but you a the, the big thing here is you're you're missing the you're missing the idea of of credibility and authenticity because it doesn't have that Google logo stamped beside it. Yeah, like you said, th- these are not bad things. Like if you've got a shoebox full of reviews and you want to go and put them up on your website and write them yourself, uh, great. You know that, that's a, that's a step up from keeping them as piece of paper in your house. But uh, you're missing a third party stamp of verification, like this is real, and you're missing reach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're you're getting the couple people who come to your website. Uh, they're getting the 10x amount of people who search for anything with that intent where that listing shows. So yeah, your your reach is just a fraction. I want to come back to this idea of like reach or amplifying the amplifying those reviews later. But here here's a really poignant question: uh, What's the best score out of five to have on Google? Like, is it five? Because that always yeah. seems that always seems to be like I. Whenever I see a five, I'm like, I, maybe they just don't have enough reviews yet. There's something like mathematically 
incongruent about it. So is there like a sweet spot that's that's maybe I don't know if it's four point six or if it's four point nine five. Like is it, has has anyone ever done the number crunching to figure out what the most trusted score on Google is? It's that whole if it's too good to be true. Kind of feels like it's too good to be true. Like you, you see that that company or that restaurant or that home service business, and they got, you know, fifty five star reviews. Everyone's a five star. And you're looking at that, and you're like, are those real? Right. They're not real, are they? So uh, we generally, um, it appears that about four point eight is is your optimum rating. It, it, imperfection breeds trust. Uh, people don't trust perfect. And that slight degree of imperfection is enough for people to say, hey, this is authentic. There's a couple of people in there who, you know, they, they got complaints and that's real. Uh, and it opens up another door. And I think I think you probably have this tallied for sometimes later in the chat, but it opens up an amazing door to show what kind of company you are by how you respond to the negative reviews. Um, so not to be shied away from slight imperfection actually is endearing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sort of like the same reason we don't trust like faces that are too man, it's teeth that are too straight and faces that are too symmetrical. Like there's a level of uh, humanness that we associate with slight imperfection, not major imperfection. If you're getting, if you're at a 2.7, that's maybe, uh, you know, hey, get some work done. But 4.8 is kind of like that perfect crooked tooth for the, for the Google reviews. How many, um, how many Google reviews represents a critical mass for a contractor or a home service business? Is there a is there a volume of reviews that we're looking for? Is it a hundred? Is it five hundred? I mean, that seems like a lot. It's got to be more than ten, though. Like, where's sort of the sweet spot? It's really a context question. So, uh, if you're in a local area and you're you're searching for uh, the best plumber in Vancouver. Um, and, and you look it up and, and maybe you as a company, you're a plumber and you've got, you know, 50 reviews, 4.8 rating. You're like, I'm killing it. I got 50 reviews, 4.8 rating. I'm doing awesome. And, and maybe you would be, but you take that into a competitive market like Vancouver and the next door guy has 200 reviews with a 4.8 rating. Now your 50 reviews is like, you know, wow, is this guy just starting out? Like, what's wrong here? Um, so I think thinking about this question in terms of absolutes is challenging because it really has to do with the context of the market that you're in. Mm. Uh, are there competitors in the market who've set a bar that's significantly higher than where you're at today? And if they have, that's the bar where you have to reach and, and get above. Mm. So... Um a practical step might be doing a little market analysis, looking at your competitors, tracking not just the rating, but how many reviews they have and sort of benchmarking against that rather than coming up with some arbitrary number like 100 or 100 reviews is going to get the job done for us. It really depends on your geography and where you operate. Yeah. Top rated is a thing. You know, yeah. once again, con consumers... We all want the best. We're all looking for the best. No one wants to choose the second best. So when you're thinking about ratings and reviews, again, we're looking for the top rated. So given the choice between a company with 100 five-star reviews and a company with 1,000 five-star reviews, even though you know, a 100 five-star reviews guy must might be doing awesome, we're going to mentally and emotionally think right off the bat that the 1,000 guy's better. Um, and, and we're gonna make that call. So, yeah, do the competitive research in the market, 
the goal is going to be top rated. How important algorithmically is this concept of recency? Like how I, I've heard a few people say like a review that is two months old is kind of ancient. Like, I don't know, like what's the, in other words, for a, for a contractor who's listening to this in their truck right now, can you describe sort of like the tempo or the cadence of like how often they need to be updated to, to sort of still, to still be relevant in the eyes of Google and the algorithm that sort of, you know, foists things to the top or pushes them to the bottom? How, how critical is recency in this whole conversation? It's super critical. Uh, we've got three factors, actually. Relevancy, recency, and velocity. So, uh, again, the, the total number of re reviews might be an interesting factor for being top rated, but it's not the only factor. So when Google is looking alg algorithmically at the, at the reviews and they see one company that has a very high total, but they see another company that's earning multiple times more reviews in a shorter period of time, their recency and velocity is higher, uh, they'll likely actually outweigh the company that's getting a higher recency and velocity over the company with a higher total. Uh, you'll likely find them positioned higher on the local three-pack there, which shows at the top of the Google search results, and uh, just discoverability in general. You'll see recency and, and velocity um, being a significant factor, and relevancy as well. That's so what people are actually writing about a company, uh, you'll see uh, results often skewed for reviews that are very contextually relevant to what the search intent is. So if I'm searching for, you know, uh, most reliable plumber in Vancouver, and you've got a swath of reviews all around reliability for one specific plumbing company, uh, you, you'll see a big relevancy score there for the search results. So, and I, I guess the lesson with that one is like, um, you know, we kind of, we kind of got it. I think a lot of us into the habit a little while ago of thinking we could acquire reviews until we're sitting in a really nice spot and then we've got them and we don't need more because you right. know, we look good. And, and I think that's the big lesson on this one. Um, Google today and uh, whoever owns the review ecosystem tomorrow, uh, the absolute total is not the be all and end all. It's the regular acquisition of recent relevant reviews. You know, every day, day in, day out, your customers are saying that you're the best. If you're sitting on 150 reviews from two years ago, it's conceivable that a new competitor of yours with half the reviews, they've got 75 reviews, but they're more recent and they're more frequent and they're more relevant, could actually outperform you on the search front. That, that's that's a real possibility. So the, it's like be, being complacent with, well, we did a big batch a couple of years ago, I think we're good, is a recipe for disaster where, where your findability online is concerned. Absolutely. That's really interesting. That's really, really interesting. And I, the relevant part, I, I didn't realize, like you, the key word reliability should, if that's what you want to be show up for, that should be in the reviews. I didn't even key into that. So then maybe like Lars, give us a play by play of um, what a contracting business or home service business should be doing both in reality, 
in terms of like how they conduct a job, how they complete the job, how they follow up, the prompts that they give to provide a review in person. So there's like the IRL version of it. And then what should they also be doing digitally or how, how should technology support that process? And maybe that leads into a little, a quick discussion on, on nice job as well. But what are sort of the best practices here to get the volume up, the recency up, the velocity up, the relevancy up? Like what, what can contractors practically do to, to make a habit out of this? I think the the first takeaway is that it's not just a marketing uh, practice. This is a company culture thing. Um, you want to start every decision in the company with the question, what will my customers love? Because ultimately, reputation marketing is about turning your customers into the voice of your company. So you need to turn your customers into vocal fans. And that is a very... A deliberate process that doesn't happen by chance and it happens through a series of small decisions that have big impacts on the client starting every decision with what will my customer love um, and that, that's you know just reevaluating everything from how you bill your customers to how you inform them about, about a job being complete just start every decision with that that simple question that is transformative and little things we can do, like um, a good friend of mine ran a home service company in the U.S. for a while, and they had a practice called Plus Ones. And every time they went to a job, every crew was told, you've got to find one extra thing you can do for this customer that they're not expecting that's going to delight them. One thing. It doesn't have to be huge. You know, it can be a little thing. It could be a thank you note. It could be, hey, you were here to pressure wash the driveway and you threw in a little bit of extra stuff. Um, just one extra unexpected thing that's going to create delight in the customer. Be surprised and delight is a massive lever for turning a customer into a vocal fan. And, you know, that might be your single lowest cost customer acquisition tool right there. Surprise and delight on the job site. When it comes to closing out a project, collecting payment, and then there's a moment somewhere there, but you know, around the final, around the final days of completion to money collected somewhere in there, there there's a moment to prompt the customer to, to provide a review. So would you like, how should job site managers or business owners or whoever's responsible for this be bringing up that conversation with the client to kind of, you know, in addition to doing an amazing job, is, is there sort of a, a, a prompt that they can give to increase the likelihood of a five-star and a nicely written review on Google? Yeah, uh, you're, you're trying to find like the moment of peak excitement. So that, that's the moment you're looking for. You're like, when is my customer going to be the most excited about what I just did for them? This is the moment where you want to get the ask in. Moment of peak excitement. That's going to be different for different industries. And then if we can introduce a human element into that moment of peak excitement, that's really impactful because humans uh, feel a greater de degree of accountability to other humans than they do to an email or a text message. So if you can have your pros finish the job, if that's the moment of peak excitement, just a simple couple of words, you know, hey, we, we just loved working for you today. We had such a good job, time on the job site. Looks beautiful. If you think it looks beautiful, we'd love it if you can help out your neighbors. 
let them know it looks beautiful too. Um, you're going to get an invite into your email or your text message in just a minute here. And uh, if you let them know, your neighbors could, you know, they, they can experience this as well. So just a, a tiny little short sentence uh, can be super impactful. If it's possible to change that sentence to away from an ask to a give, that's a good strategy. So, you know, ideally, rather than, hey, would you give me a review? Hey, could you help your neighbors by telling them how your experience was? Because now they're giving something of value to everyone in their community. And people like that. They like to feel valuable. They like to feel like they're giving to their community. So, you know, little vernacular changes like that can be impactful on the on the human request. I love that term. And then I guess moment of oh, go ahead. I love that term moment of peak excitement. We just left uh, a couple of weeks ago. We were at this leadership retreat with with uh, you know about eighty of our Breakthrough Academy members and team. Um, we were out. We were in Lake of the Woods in Ontario, and as we were leaving, um, you know, we were all getting in boats. You know, a few people maybe a little hungover, but but overarchingly, the vibes are good. Everyone's had a great few days. Caught a lot of fish at the lodge. Enjoyed the food. Had some sun. Enjoyed company with each other, etc. And as they were, and as we were leaving, they go, you know, there's two big boats full leaving this, this private lodge. It's probably like 80 people. And, uh, the owner comes down to the dock and says, it's like, do you guys have a great time? And everyone goes, we had the best time, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, you know, what would really help us the most is if you could go onto Google right now and just give us a quick note there. And it was like, Literally everyone's phones came out. And I think in that moment, they literally doubled their Google review count because it was delivered with the perfect tone of voice and the right energy right at that moment of peak excitement. Now, she did not have any technology to support it, but she could have. What would, what, do, how does Nice Job play into this or how does technology, broadly speaking, play into this to really, you mentioned like a, hey, a prompt's going to hit your phone in a second. Like, can you just maybe talk through, uh, the mechanics there and, and how this gets made easier with platforms like yours? Yeah. Um, so you, we want to make it easier for our customers. Like, you know, we're asking something from them. We want to take away all the friction. This should be seamless and, and even kind of enjoyable for them. So one, get it to where they want to respond. So, you know, put it on their phone. Don't make them go searching for your company. Uh, so we send automatically through text message to a customer's phone at the moment of peak excitement, a simple review invite. Uh, one click and they're in, they're, they're, they're writing the review. Um, so that's something a nice job automates. We do it based on any trigger that you set up. So you can set up any peak excitement trigger in the background. So for example, let's say peak excitement is when you close off a job on your field service software. Uh, that could trigger the invite that goes out to the customer. And then that way, ideally, you haven't even walked across the lawn back to your truck yet, and they've got the message sitting on their device in their pocket with a one-click button to leave that review. Yeah. It just creates a simple, easy experience for the customer. Removing friction. Yeah, I like that. And and yeah, you you mentioned like, okay, this you know, I don't approach it just purely as a marketing as a marketing ploy. This should be more of an identity piece for the company or kind of a cultural element of the company. But what are your thoughts on creating some incentives, dangling some carrots, if you will, for field staff? job site managers, crew leaders, laborers, technicians, whatever kind of professional works inside your business. Have you seen success when business owners will offer 
I'm just making this up, like a $50 bonus to the crew who gets a five star. Like, does stuff like that work? Do you, are you an advocate for that? I'm a big advocate of incentives. Uh, there, there's a, a Charles Munger quote. Um, if you want ants to come, put sugar on the floor. Uh, he's a smart guy. Uh, incentives power human behavior. So if you want the right human behavior, create the right incentives. Yeah. And you, those incentives might be monetary, but it could also be recognition, you know, celebrating your team members who've created the best experiences. Humans crave recognition. Uh, so play on the recognition and respect. Show them how much you value them. Monetary is great too. Humans also crave money. So, uh, you know, monetizing incentives based on creating great experiences. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the key is our teams should feel that they are given the autonomy and empowerment to create the great experiences and then given the reward feedback loop for doing it. So both those things are needed. Like if we take away the autonomy required to create surprise and delight, well, they simply can't do it, you know, and that happens sometimes in teams. You've got teams that might want to go above and beyond, but their autonomy is not there to be able to do it. And then if they have the autonomy and they do it, they should feel awfully special about it. We should be shouting it from the rooftops within the company that they've done this. So there's a there's a an identity piece, but there's also sort of like a structural piece to this as well, where you're kind of putting in place policies uh, on the job site, incentive plans off the job site to really put your people in the field who ultimately are the uh, really, the, the, it's their work that that the five star review hinges on. You're putting them in this scenario where they really can deliver. That's why I really like that example of plus ones. It sounded like your friend kind of gave those crews a lot of lateral movement to decide what that plus one was. It's not just an arbitrary cup of you know this. We always get them a cup of coffee on day one. It's like no, they can get creative with it. I can pressure wash the shed while I'm doing the driveway, or I can. I can do this other thing or I can or to come up with something totally new. Like there's a level of uh, freedom around how they want to deliver that, which I think, I don't know, almost gamifies it to some degree. Yeah, it does. And it sounds simple enough, but there's friction acting against this. We, we want profitable companies. We want our crews to be efficient. We have schedules. We've got time that you have to keep to. We've got uh, materials cost on site, uh, equipment cost out in the field. Uh, so you have to balance the frictions that are going to act against the idea of a plus one because there are frictions with the benefits of creating surprise and delight with a mechanism like plus one. And there, there's going to be a balance there um, that you're going to have to tune in with your company. Uh, like anything, you know, the pendulum can sway too far in one direction and, and, and then it's no longer effective. So as easy as it sounds, it actually takes a little bit of forethought it does require flexibility and autonomy, maybe more than we're used to um, if we want to be able to create that. The benefits, though, think about the value of turning one customer into a fan. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't think about, you know, from a home service perspective, I think a lot of home service contractors have never thought of their customers as fans before. Um, but... If you're a home service contractor, you have fans. Uh, fans are customers who value your service enough that they want to tell other people about it, and you have those. Mm -hmm. And the value of those 
is you know arguably your your, your single most valuable asset as a company. One leading uh, VC said that their value estimation tool of a company, uh, they would much rather invest in a company that had a hundred passionate fans than ten thousand mediocre customers. Hmm. Uh, because this is what's going to create that hockey stick growth, growth curve for, for you as a company. Uh, this is a health metric of a company that surpasses the revenue health metric that you're looking at on your books because it's not showing you just the picture of who you are as a company today. Yeah. It's showing you the picture of who you will be a company tomorrow because every one of those fans is going to tell their friends and that's a snowball that can't be stopped. That's so true. It's just a, it's like a, it's like a lens switch. It's a matter of perspective. You're, it's like this, this is, you know what this is actually, this is, if revenue, if your PL is sort of a snapshot of how you did this year, you with this stuff you're talking about, those 10,000 like avid fans or, or your, your 200 five-star views, whatever you have going for you, that's like a leading indicator, an early indicator of future success in a way that your net profit this year isn't. That just shows what just happened. It says nothing about where you're going in the future. But this sort of groundswell of loyalty and excitement, even enthusiasm around your brand and your service is abs- That's why the VC guys are like, hey, this matters to us a hell of a lot more than 10,000 sort of lukewarm clients. Um, I, You know, it even solves a, an ancillary issue. That's one of the biggest issues for pro- probably almost every person listening to this podcast. And that's finding great people for your teams. Because people are attracted to a culture that values creating exceptional customer experiences. If we're looking for the best people to be on our team, they're going to flock towards the company that values creating the best experiences for the customers. Um, You know, no one wants to come into a company where it's like, you know, do your job, go home and, and don't care. Um, and if we want the best people, create a culture that celebrates creating amazing experiences for our customers and turning them into fans. And, you know, we'll, we'll also contribute to solving that hiring dilemma that that's yeah. uh, pretty intense right now. How, so let's talk about the flip side of this. Um, how do you advise entrepreneurs to respond to the one stars and the two stars uh, and the long paragraphs about <laughs> how much they suck? which we've all had, we've all gotten Mm. myself included. Um, How do you advise entrepreneurs to respond to that both in the comments, like on platform digitally, and then in real life as well? What's the SOP for dealing with one stars? Take like as many deep breaths as you need before your emotions are gone. Uh, That's number one. Uh, Don't respond to a review if you're feeling emotional about it. And if you can't get the emotions down, get someone else. Is that to common? To it for you. Sorry to cut you off. How is that? Is that oh, yeah. Like people will sort of like, well, I'm going to show him in the comments. Absolutely. Like, you know, they're they're out there not to win a customer. They're out there to win an argument. Um, and, and, you know, this is not, you know, we, we've all been there. Uh, you know, I, I think if any of us were to say that we haven't been in a situation where we desperately wanted to justify ourselves, we'd be lying. Of course. You know, we, we've all been there in a situation where we wanted to justify ourselves, where we wanted to win the argument. But this is not about winning the argument. It's about winning the customer. And so step one, uh, wait until you're in the mindset where you're ready to win the customer, not the argument. Okay. Step two. Step two, win the customer. Uh, So, okay, why is the customer feeling the way that they're feeling today? 
what steps do you have to take in order to change how they're feeling right now to the way that you want them to feel? And take those steps and then write about those steps in the review response. So ideally, our review response is showing the steps that we've just taken to remedy the situation. It's not like, hey, I'm sorry you feel that way, you know, uh, we're really sorry this happened, you know, great, you know, a bunch of sorries are okay. Um, but what really shows what kind of company we are is, hey, uh, I understand, you know, if it's the case, we messed up. Uh, here's what we're doing about it. This is the next steps that we're going to do right now. And this is how we're going to make the situation right for you. And, and then we can prove it with our actions, not just our words. Now, this doesn't apply to every circumstance. There's cases where, where truly you didn't mess up. And, and, you know, there's people who are just, you know, serial complainers sure. on reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, even in those scenarios, though, we're not trying to win the argument. We're trying to win the customer. Uh, so look for an opportunity to be understanding. Uh, see if we can even ask them questions, maybe offline, uh, of how we can do better next time. And then when we're responding in the review response, show our course of action to remedy the situation, even if it wasn't our fault. Because you know, some, sometimes it's not our fault. It's out of our control. But we still want to see how we can win the customer. Lars, what's the... Um what is the grace period or sort of the the statute of limitations on on like how long do we have if you're pouring a cement foundation and it firms up and, and cures you can't fix it it you know there's but there's maybe a few moments there where a mistake can be corrected while this while it's still malleable and it's still soft I'm wondering if you can maybe kind of take that analogy to Google. Is there a couple days? Is it a couple weeks? How long? And I don't know. Actually, this is a maybe a technical question. Is there a rule within Google that, you know, there's a couple days before this one star becomes a permanent one star? Or is it something that we can kind of always fix? Yeah, so something you can always fix. Um, though the friction for fixing it arguably gets much harder with the passage of time. So someone can always update their review that they've left. Uh, a year later, five years later, uh, they can go and update the review that they've left on Google. And we get this, you know, qu- quite you know, often with, with the companies that we work with, people who go above and beyond to remedy a situation and turn a one-star review into a five-star review. And not infrequently, that person becomes one of their top most vocal fans uh, because of that process of reconciliation. Um now, the passage of time, though, when you're talking about real life, like not, you know, how long can I edit this in Google, but the real life uh, effects, um, as time passes, what you have to do to turn a bad experience into a good one, it's like interest, you know, it builds up. The more time that pass, uh, passes, often the harder it is to to reverse somebody's opinion and the more damage that opinion has done because that reviews lingered up there. Yeah. Uh, so ideally, you know, as soon as you can get past the emotional state of not wanting to win the argument, try to win the customer, do it as quick as possible. So three simple steps, one deep breaths, two, go fix the problem. (laughs) Three, talk about how you fix the problem in the comments, in the reply thread within, within Google so that other people can see it. I like that. It's practical. Advice on amplification or reach, as you say. So if I think you framed it this way earlier, Lars, um, 
there's two levers when we're trying to communicate trust. One is the credibility or the authenticity of the of the review itself. The second is how many people see it. So what are maybe the more outside of the box? Like obviously Google hosts your reviews. Have you seen success with business owners using those in social posts, adding those to their website, creating other forms of content or other marketing uh, assets out of those reviews? Like what's, what are the, what are the tips and tricks um, around amplification? Yeah. Um, you you want to, these are like marketing golden nuggets, the, these little snippets that your customers have written about you and left on, on a review site like Google. And you want to take those and, and get them in front of as many people as possible. So let's talk top of fold on your website. Uh, if you have a good deal of customer feedback uh, on Google or, or anywhere else, you should be screaming this top of fold on your website. Rather than saying we're the best, let your customers do the talking. You know, right there, uh, before someone has to even scroll, uh, let's get the voice of the customer doing that talking for you. And there's ways you can do this. You can do this through an aggregate rating. Uh, you, you see this is fairly common with SaaS websites. They'll have the like, little aggregate rating, you know, 4.8 star, 2200 reviews. This is great. Right off the bat, you know, you're feeling pretty good about scrolling down and seeing what this company has to offer. You can do it with a snippet approach uh, going through and trying to match the anticipated needs of your website visitor to a snippet that answers the question that they're most likely asking from the customer. So put yourself into the minds of your website visitors. What are they thinking when they land on your web page? Uh, if you're a home services company where your crew has to come inside the home, uh, chances are a lot of them thinking, can I trust them wandering around inside my home when I'm not at home? You know, I, I'm out at work and now I'm going to have a crew of a bunch of people that I don't even know wandering around inside my house. Uh, can you find a small snippet from one of your reviews that answers that question succinctly and, and feature that? Mm -hmm. Let your customers answer the question. Mm -hmm. uh, social media, absolutely. Like if someone's coming to, to your social media page, uh, chances are they're looking for two things. They want to see visual evidence of what you do, you know, pictures of your work, and they want to see what your customers said about it. So you use social media to show off those two things. Show the job site photos and then show right there with the job site photo what the customer said about it. Uh, that's the best before after in the world. Uh, because it's not like, you know, before or after of the job site, it's before or after of the customer, you know. Uh, this is how they felt after you did the work that you did. And, and that's super impactful for, for visitors there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, don't be content with leaving them on Google. Take them, use them, uh, be strategic with them, even paid advertising. You know, pay, paid ads isn't a bad thing in the world of reputation marketing. We, we sometimes think that, you know, reputation marketing and paid ads is two different things. But you can use paid ads to amplify the voice of the customer by literally using reviews as your paid ads and then amplifying that paid ad. Uh, that can be super effective. Yeah, I, I love this idea of uh, just like more juice for the squeeze, like 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 multiplying the ROI. It's like get I also like, you know, I, I, I work in the brand marketing sales arena. And one of the things that I always think about when we decide to do anything is how versatile is this asset? 
meaning can it do three to four jobs at once or is this, does it only have one use case? And Google reviews are good for when people read Google, they're good for your website, they're good for your socials, you can spin them into paid ads. They are a very versatile thing. And I, that's for, for that reason, I kind of love the focus on that because of the knock on benefits that you get downstream. Um, Okay, I've, I've, I've got a couple closing questions for you. This is just sort of an interesting one I want your brain on. I, this is, I'm selfishly kind of asking for myself, but but I, I think the listeners will like it too. If the 2010, okay, if the like 1950 to 2000 was like sort of traditional, you know, madmen style company boasting about how great they are style advertising. And let's say the 2000s were, uh, say, especially the 2010s, kind of like um, this sort of content, uh, the zeitgeist was this sort of content marketing approach. And I'm sure I'm skipping a few chapters there, but what I'm trying to say is like trends, patterns, best practices evolve in brand and marketing and sales. What does what does the next ten years look like in terms of emerging trends uh, for marketing and brand that contractors ought to stay in front of? I, I don't see a reversal in the trust trend. You know, trust has diminished within corporations, institutions, and moved into peers. I can't see a U-turn happening on that. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a high likelihood of, of suddenly people starting to trust corporations and companies again. Uh, if anything, I think that the level of trust in individuals and peers is just going to keep going up and up. And as the amount of connections that people have with online people grows. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think that we're going to see in the next 10 years, um, a massive switch in marketing dollars towards uh, these peer-to-peer -peer trust networks, uh, brand advocates, uh, not influencers in the, the the style of the 2010s of you know uh, Lady Gaga on an airplane, um, influencers in the terms of uh, your neighbors, uh, your your community members, uh, people that you might know in an offline world and an online world. Uh, talking about the experience that they've had with local companies and then local companies learning how to automate those those uh, those influencers and amplify those influencers. So an emergence of tools around creating more influencer networks, uh, amplifying the voice of those influencers uh, so that they have more reach. I think that's one. I think the other one that we're already seeing, you know, 2010s, we saw a big shift from spray and play marketing, you know, the shotgun approach. Yeah. We're going to take a message and we're going to shoot it and hope that it hits something to super targeted. A lot more targeting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think as we go into the 20s, what we're really going to see is targeting change to personalization, hyper personalization of experiences. And that's going to play into turning your customers into your fans. Because already we have tools where we can create hyper-personalized experiences in mass for our customers. Experiences that feel almost magical because they're so personalized for that customer. And that's going to lead to those customers becoming vocal advocates and fans and, and bringing you more customers. So when you can combine those two, hyper-personalization to create exceptional experiences with 
products that empower your customers to talk and then amplify the voice of those customers, uh, that's going to be incredibly interesting over the coming years. That personalization and thing it doesn't suffer. Sorry, the oh, personalization thing is really interesting. I mean, I don't know who does. Was it was it Mailchimp? Was it someone else? Whatever email marketing platform came up with, hey, insert contact for like like that. That was like you know going way back, but that would have been like a real watershed moment for marketers. And it's like, hey, we can actually like address the person we're emailing by their first name. Obviously, it's you know it's become way more sophisticated since. But this idea of personalization, where you're speaking to a person about their home and their needs that they mentioned on a form fill or in an estimate or somewhere, and maybe there's some other personal touch added, whether that's done through you know just automations in a, in a good platform or it's you know AI generated. You're saying that that is that's the way things are going. Where we need to talk. We're not just like targeting specific like groups. We're targeting like Tim, who has this house on this street and the paint's peeling here and he wants this done. Yeah, and, and even more than just the communication with them, the actual experience. So we can do things already today. Uh, for example, if we take a data set about uh, a specific customer, uh, including service that we've done for them before, uh, interactions that we've had with them before, and the needs that they have today, we can represent that data set in a way that an AI agent can create a personalized program specifically for that customer that's tailored to make them exceptionally happy uh, and deliver that into the hands of our pros as they're walking up to the door to provide the service. You know, everything from the tiny little details around, you know, hey, they've got a dog named, you know, Snoopy inside that house. Right. The owner really loves Snoopy. Please pet him and say hi uh, to how they deliver the service, you know, they're, you know, landscaper, he, he's really particular about the fertilizer on his tomatoes. Whatever it is, we can create these hyper-personalized experiences for the clients. But previously, the, the blocker for that was scalability. You know, it was very hard to scale those experiences because the, the personalization was held within the mind of a team member. And as your team grew, it was hard to deliver that same. You had to almost productize everything yeah. in a flat way where it was no longer personalized because otherwise you couldn't scale. Uh, now we can take, you know, the benefits of a one-person owner-operated business that created that amazing experience to a small group of people. Mm. And we can actually scale that to a company that is scaling to many teams on the road, thousands of clients, without reduction of the experience level. And that's exciting because that's going to lead to more vocal advocates, more vocal customers who shout from the rooftop that you're the best. And, and then, honestly, you're going to win because uh, that's going to drive growth. It's uh, You can do boutique, bespoke, you know, white glove service at scale. You, you, that, the, the limit, the rate limiting factor before was, you know, one person's brain and how much they can remember and then deliver. But if that can all be outsourced to technology, the, the amount that we can personalize for Tim with the dog Snoopy, et cetera, is, is, is pretty mind blowing. Um, that's really interesting. A anything else on like the emerging trends front? You mentioned, uh, no U-turn on the trust economy. You mentioned more personalization. Is there anything else that's kind of on your, on your mind as you, you look forward at the next decade? I feel like it's not going to be too long before we've got to consider the, the channels where the trust economy is held. 
Uh, will Google retain its dominance over the next 10 years? Well, there's an interesting question. Uh, what effect will search and discoverability, how will search and discoverability be affected by the emergence of people getting knowledge acquisition through AI models like ChatGPT? Um, how will that lead to, to the customer lifecycle as they ask a large language model who is the best in their area versus act, asking, you know, a semantic search model like Google who is the best? Uh, yeah, there, it's going to be an interesting couple of years. The fundamentals don't change, but the mechanisms do change. The fundamentals that we want to validate our decisions off the voice of others, I don't believe that that behavior is going to change. But the mechanisms for how we do that are are prone for disruption in the coming years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that'll be interesting to watch. Tell our listeners a little bit about uh, Nice Job, your, your story, building it, what it does today, how you serve clients. Just give us kind of an outline of of the product that you've built and why it rocks. Well, thanks for the shout out. But uh, yeah, it's it's our customers is why it rocks. We've got uh, we've got amazing customers. Uh, and nice Job came about because. I was uh, intensely uh, disillusioned by the state of marketing. I, I started an ad agency in Toronto. Uh, we did a lot of big companies, corporations, and the, the mandate was, you know, here's a ton of money, win as customers. Uh, nothing about how do we create better experiences for their customers. You know, it was all about how do we pay the most money to major networks so that we can get the biggest reach, so we can win the most customers, and, you know, they didn't care about the customers. And that was really disillusioning. Uh, I felt like uh, there there should be a reward mechanism for companies that truly care about their customers. And that reward mechanism should be growth. You know, they should win. They should get more customers. So that's where Nice Job came about. It's uh, really we we deal in the currency of of fans. Uh, So uh, our our output, we're, we're known as a reputation marketing company, a reviews company, a websites company. But really what we're delivering is fans. Uh, How do we turn your customers into vocal advocates that tell more people about your company? How do we take their voice and and amplify it? Um, And we do that largely through automation. So right now we get about four times more reviews than pen and paper and about two times more reviews than other uh, reputation marketing companies. and the primary reason for that is, is through the experience that we create uh, in winning reviews. So uh, peak excitement, you know, get the invite out there onto their device at the right time, moment of peak excitement, and then follow up. So we find that over 50% of our reviews come from following up three times. So if you just send one invite to a customer, you're losing out on on half your reviews, Uh um, because people, you know, inherently, uh, they're, they're not always ready to write. You know, they're busy, they're, they're sidetracked, they're cooking, they're eating. Uh, so you got to follow up. And then when you do get into their hands, remove all those obstacles, make the person process frictionless. So we've done a pretty good job of that. Um, I'd say we're just getting started, though. Uh, over the next 10 years, that, that's our mission. Can we turn every one of your customers into a passionate vocal fan uh, so that they'll bring you more customers? Where could a listener go try it out, connect with connect with you, learn more about the platform? Uh, give, give us a URL or a place to go do some investigation. A nicejob.com. Um 
please let us know what you think about it when you try. Uh, that That's really important to us. So let us know what your experience is like. Uh, it's a free trial, 14 days. So use as much as you want for 14 days. Um, we also have a website product that's pretty interesting. Uh, we use the voice of the customer to drive website conversions. And because of that, we'll, we're guaranteeing that we'll win 10% more sales than your existing website or it's free. Uh, so our reviews product is 75 bucks a month. Our website product is 99 bucks a month. Um, and try it out. See how it goes for your business. Uh, um, yeah, we'd be really excited to hear your experience. Lars, you've said it all. Uh, let's get you out there on that motorcycle. Enjoy the ride. And thanks for being here today. Thanks, Benji. Enjoy the sunshine. See ya. Thanks so much for watching this episode of Contractor Evolution. If you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it. Paynet podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org. 